Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> Ain't God good? All the, some, who said that? I heard that all the time. God's good all the time. We're, if you're visiting with us this morning, we're glad you're here. We hope you just kick back and enjoy us. Now, I made the mistake years ago. My youngest son was in a church service, and I said to all the visitors, just make yourself at home, kick off your shoes and relax. And I looked over, and he had stretched on the front row with no shoes on, and I thought, I better not say that anymore. But anyway, I reminded him of it every time I see him, so just, just for your information. Do what? He was four at the time. He's about eight now, I think, <laughs> mentally. So, If you will, get your Bibles and turn with you to Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through thir- uh, 23. 21 through 23. Now, this passage of the Scripture today comes from a, a little verse that used to be around. I guess it's still around for that matter. But I'm not what I used to be. I'm not what I hope to be. I'm not even what I want to be. And I'm certainly not what I ought to be, but thank God I'm not what I used to be. This is in Paul's letter to the Colossians. In fact, it comes from a city called Colossae. But let me ask you first, before we get started on that part, how many of you use computers? If you use a computer, raise your hand. Just about everybody in the room. Aren't they wonderful instruments? When the first... When we first started using computers, we were told by the people that sell computers that they would save us time and paper. You won't even imagine how much. That was a lie right out of hell. (laughs) I mean, there's nothing. I use more paper now than I used to use. But studies have shown that young people now spend more time in front of a computer screen than they do a television. Television is boring because it isn't interactive. Well, I guess you can put your computer on and make it that way, but if you don't know how to hook it up, you can't. And Judy doesn't, so we don't have one that way. But it's play like video games and so forth. And although most of our files are electronic, computers have only multiplied the stacks of paper that we print out. It's amazing how much paper you waste now using computers that they said would save us uh, paper. But computer technology is pretty amazing if you really think about it, especially since there are no more, let me rework, are more and more of wireless networks. The time may come in the future, probably not while I'm here, but just it may come in the future. In fact, I think they have it already, where that... You come to worship and you bring your laptop, and I could stand up here and it just punch a button and send something to your computer, your laptop, and you can read everything I'm saying, verses or whatever it may be. Now, don't expect that soon because I'm not computer technology. I just, you know, I still write most of what I do anyway. But it's actually, we have that technology today. A lot of people use it. In the larger churches, they'll have that technology where they can just put it up on the screens from the pulpit. All he's got to do is hit a button or two, and there it pops up. I tried that one time, and the wrong thing popped up. Nothing bad, but nothing bad. It just wasn't what I wanted. I panicked, so I'm not using them anymore. But how many of you have ever been frustrated working on a computer? Probably 100% of us, if you've used one at all. Computers get what is commonly known a computer virus. That sounds bad in itself. But today I want to talk to you about something more important than dealing with a computer virus. I want to share with you what about what 
to do when your life is infected by a deadly mental and moral virus. And every one of us have that virus in our body. All of us need to hear this because we have all had some bad software installed in our souls. We all have that desire to do things that we shouldn't do, if you will. Again, the title of this message is, I'm not what I used to be. Just this past week, now I've shared with you all several times that there were really three guys that were young men at the time and so forth, older than I am, but young men at the same time, that uh, were very influential in me becoming a Christian. And I've shared with you, I've, I've gotten contact since Christmas, One, probably the man that was most responsible or most consistent, I guess it would. But this, just this past week, we got to go down to Burnett, Texas. I usually call it Burnett, and I've been corrected many times around here. But it's Burnett, the way I understand you all pronounce it, even though you are wrong. But it just, nonetheless, we'll do it that way. But it, we got to go in there because one of our friends, one of the guys that uh, we, well, in fact, we've known this family for years and years now, but he was one of the ones influential in me becoming a Christian. And they're now on a, one of those teams that travel around the country building churches. They're down at Burnett building a uh, cowboy church or remodeling. I'm not sure exactly what they're doing. A big job anyway. And so that's where I, we got to see them. And just to share the, the, the memories that we had together. And, and like I say, him and two of the guys were very, very, wouldn't give up on this young man. And so I can honestly say, I'm not what I hope to be. I'm not what I even want to be. I'm not even what I ought to be. But thank God, I'm not what I used to be. I'm not what I used to be. Nothing because I did it. I didn't change anything. But I met a man named Jesus Christ, and he changed everything about me. My way of thinking, my way of talking, my actions, and everything else. I don't know how we got on the subject, but a while ago, just for church, Miss Celia was talking, and Judy was telling her a story that before we ever got married, and uh, I had a roommate, my parents had moved off, and I'd kept the house here in Fort Worth, just a little small house, but I kept it, and, and that's where I was living, and, and going to go to college and so forth, and and so this guy moved in, and I'd, I'd always been told, don't let one of your friends ever move in with you. And so I come in, I was working as a surveyor on a surveying crew, and I come in one night on a Friday night, been gone all week, I was tired, exhausted, and he had a party going on in our house. I thought, that's all right, going there, I'm going to crash, I'm going to go to sleep, I won't worry about it. I went there and tried to crash, it's too loud. I finally got up, his name was Waylon. I said, Waylon, I need to talk to you. And so we go in the kitchen. Now, I don't know why I'm even telling you this. I probably shouldn't. But but we was sitting there, and the argument was getting a little bit hot because I wanted some peace and quiet. I said, you need to get these people out of here. I'm tired. I'm ready to go to bed. And he kept saying something back and forth to me. And I just reached in the knife drawer, and he was standing on the other side of the room, and I threw it. And I didn't mean for it, but it stuck about that far from his head. The next morning, he moved out pretty quickly. But that's, that's just sort of the personality I had. I would just, I would get, the least little thing would light my fuse, and I'd blow up. Now, thank God I didn't hit him with it. I probably wouldn't be standing here today if I had him. But it just, I look back at so many areas of my life and think, thank God I'm not what I used to be. Thank God he's changed me totally. 
That doesn't mean I don't lose my temper every once in a while, so just remember that. But anyway, this is the ideal that Paul expressed when he wrote this letter to the church, to the Christians, 2,000 years ago in Colossae. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 and 20 through 23. Would you stand with me as we read these words together? Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear God, we thank you, Lord, for this day you've given us here. We thank you for each person that's in this room. And Lord, we know that you brought us here for a reason. And Lord, that reason is that we may draw closer to you before we leave this building. Lord, our prayer is don't let these doors shut until every single person in it had an opportunity at least to come to know the true Savior. Lord, there may be some here that do not know Him. There may be some here that just drifted away and got away. They're Christians, but they just got off the path. There could be people of all kinds, and all kinds of problems are going through today. And Lord, I just pray that you'd open these doors and just, Lord, just let your Spirit speak to each one of us each and every one of us today before we leave this building. Thank you, Lord, for your presence. Thank you, Lord, most of all for Jesus Christ. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. These three verses say a lot. They summarize the doctrine of redemption, if you think about it. There are th- these are three words we will focus on to explain the process of reconciliation. First, is the word once, O-N-C-A, just a little bitty word, but it describes what we used to be before Jesus saved our lives, saved our souls. The word once describes so much right there. The second word is now, N-O-W, describes the difference Jesus has made in our lives, our reconciliation, and finally, the word if, just a little bitty word if, explains how we can find positive proof we have been redeemed. There's a lot of people that call themselves Christians today, and you ask them, how do you know you're saved? And they cannot answer that question. Folks, let me make it very plain from the start. Going to church does not make you a Christian. Serving the church doesn't make you a Christian. Teaching a Sunday school class doesn't make you a Christian. Reading your Bible doesn't necessarily make you a Christian. You've got to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ to become a Christian. There is no other way. Jesus says, I am the only way, not one of the ways. We like to think there's many ways to God. In fact, we hear our celebrities talk quite often about, well, it's just not, that's too narrow-minded. There's many ways to reach God. Well, travel that road and see where it leads you because it ain't going to God. The final word is if. It explains how we can find positive proof that we have been redeemed. That's something we all need to know. We all need to see that, hey, this is where I'm at. This is what happened in my life. This is when it changed in all these things. So let's look at some areas of this. Number one, our past. Alienation from God. The Bible just told us that one time we were alienated. We were enemies of God. 
We were alienated away from God. Verse 21 says, And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind. We didn't even know we were enemies of God. If you'd ask the average person on the street, Do you hate God? Most of them say, No, I don't hate God. And that was our situation. Before each of us came to Christ, we weren't just neutral about God. We were considered enemies of God, according to the Bible we just read. There was a chasm separating us from God. On one side of the chasm was a holy God that we just sang about just a few moments ago. And we stood on the other side, a great chasm. We could not go across that. There is no way we could reach across it. We were totally isolated as far as God's considered. We could not reach Him. He could reach to us, but the time had not yet come. Totally isolated and alienated from the source of life-giving power. Why are we alienated? Because of our evil behavior. You say, wait a minute, I'm not too evil of a person. Our evil thinking and behavior separated us from God. Our thinking, we were sinners in our thinking. Many of us still are sometimes. We have thoughts that are anti against God, if you will. They separated us from God. We were alienated again from God. We were all born with a sin problem. Have you ever noticed that you don't have to teach a little baby, to even a child as it begins to grow, you don't have to teach them to do bad things. They just automatically pick it up. I mean, it's born in them. They just, it just comes natural. And it did for each one of us, too, because that's our nature. We were, had a sin nature. We wanted to rebel. If I didn't get my pudding when I wanted it, then I'm going to throw it in the floor. Hopefully you adults don't do that, but they're just, that's how a child acts. But we were sinners when we were born. We were born into it. Let me ask you this. How many of you have ever told a lie? Raise your hand. And the ones of you didn't, just lied. So now, you, now you're with us. So. How many lies does it take to make you a liar? One. We aren't liars because we lie. We're liars because we are liars. You can never become a Christian until you're willing to admit you are a sinner separated from God. I don't care how many good things you do. Well, I help my neighbor across the street. I help the little lady across the street at the corner. I do all these good things. You know what that's going to get you? Nothing. It won't get you anything. Sometimes we choose to do the things that we know are not right. For instance, there are times when I'm traveling down the highway, maybe let's just say going to Temple, Texas. I seem to go over quite often. Going down the road, Temple, Texas, and I look down my clock, I'm running a little bit late. And so I hit the gas pedal. And I'm going a little bit too fast. And then on top of the hill, I see something, so I slow down real quick. You see what I'm talking about? We all break the laws. Now you say, well, that's just a minor law. What's the big deal? Well, it's not so minor when you get stopped. In fact, let me, this is a true story. When Texas first came out with the Texas seatbelt law back in the early 90s, 
I just would not wear one. Nope, they're not going to make me wear a seatbelt. I went on for almost 10 years not ever wearing a seatbelt. Just bullheaded. Judy taught me well. But it just I, for about 10 years, I didn't wear one. I just I would not wear it. One day, you know, we were living in Bonham, Texas at the time. I was going to the Sherman. I was coming back, in fact, and looked in my rearview mirror, and here's a highway patrol flashing lights. He pulls up beside and says, is there a reason you're not wearing your seatbelt? Of course, I, well, I really forgot to put it on. That didn't work. Gives me a ticket. It's about $85, if I remember right. I thought, that's pretty expensive, but hey, 10 years, that's $8 a year. What's the big deal? The next week, the same highway patrolman stopped me again for the same offense. I did not know that if you get a ticket within a certain period of time, it doubles. I paid over $250 for a ticket. That got my attention that time. I started wearing my seatbelt. Sometimes I still do. No, I do all the time now, as best I can. But Anyway, that's the way we are. That's the way we think. Well, for you to break a law is wrong, but for me to do it just, just speeding a little I, I was going to a meeting or something. I mean, that's important. And that's how I justified it in my mind. And I thought, that's a lie. You didn't have to speed. You could have left five minutes earlier or whatever the situation was. In the same way, I'm guilty before God. He set his moral limits and rules, and I've broken them one after another. And so have you. But when it comes to paying the penalty, I don't have to pay the fine with God. It's more than I could ever afford. It's more than I could ever work for. It's more than I could ever do. God's requirement for sin is a sinless atonement. I didn't qualify for that. I was not sinless. How could he use me as a sinless atonement? And as we'll see in the next point, Jesus Christ is the only one who could pay that penalty for me. Now, it'd been nice if that highway patrolman says, well, tell you what, you look like a pretty good guy. I'm going to pay your penalty for you. But that didn't happen. I had to pay it. The second point we see, our present reconciliation with God. Look at verse 22. It describes our current standing before God. In reconciling with God, Jesus fixed our sin problem. Just like when you work with computers, you're going to run into frustration sooner or later. Just within the, about, well, it's been about 10 years ago now, I started back about, I don't know, 10 or 12 years ago, I started writing devotions. No reason, just because I may be reading the Bible and get a thought and write it down and just write some notes on it and so forth and, and just started doing that. At this time, we were living in uh, Texarkana, and I had written probably about 250 of them at the time. And, boy, I, I was trying to, you know, get as many I could. And in fact, now I looked at my computer the other day, and I've got over 900 of them written. I don't know what I'm going to do with them, but just one of the days, just burn them, I guess. I don't know. But it's, I enjoyed writing them. But I was on the computer one day, and I hit a button, and everything went away. I thought, you've got to be kidding me. I started hitting every button I could to get it back. That just made it worse. Man, I didn't, I thought, you've got to be kidding me. I've lost it. It's in cyberspace. I'll never see it again. And I couldn't figure out what in the world. How am I going to do it? 
after I wrote one, I threw my notes away, so I can't go back and get my notes. I thought, man, I can't believe it. I worked this at the time three or four years. It just so happened that we were about to go on vacation, go out and see our youngest son in Lubbock, Texas at the time. And went out there, and I was telling my son about it. Now, he's one of these geeks, so it just he knows all about computers. But I said, he sort of laughed at me. He says, Dad, have you never heard of the system restore? Well, yeah, sure, I've heard of that. What is that? <laughs> I had no idea what that was. He said, let me see your computer. He pulled this thing up and says, anytime this happens, all you have to do is go to this place, hit one button, and set a date to what you want it restored to. Like in this case, it was like, I want to say two weeks before this. He said, put in that date, and then I'll hit the button. And there it was. It came back. It was back. I mean, I felt like I accomplished so much. Did you know that Jesus has a restore button for each one of us? Jesus has a restore button in your life. You say, well, you don't know what I've done. No, I don't, but I can tell you what I've done. And I was surprised he restored me. Jesus had a place in your life where he can go and say, I want to restore you and bring you back something new. Isn't that great? That ought to make a Baptist shout. I mean, we can be restored. Now, let's watch how he does it. It describes our current situation, current standing before God in reconciling with God. Look at verse 22 of that passage we just read. In the body, his flesh, through death, to present you, watch what you're presented as, holy and blameless. That's God's restore point. He can, he could push a button and restore you back, but that's not the way he does it. He chooses to let you start the restoration and bring you back to where God wants you. Again, we all have a system restore point. We can't operate it. We don't know where it is. But through Jesus Christ, he brings us back to a starting place. You say, how can he bring me back? You don't know what I've done in my life. No, I don't. But the God of the book that wrote this does. And he says, I'll restore you to closeness with me. Remember, he just said we were enemies of God. And now he says, I'll restore your place of fellowship and love and respect, and growth. When I got to thinking about system restore points, it reminded me of salvation. Have you ever wished you could go back in time and undo some things you've done or some words you spoke or some actions you took or whatever it may be? We've all done those. If we ask for testimonies for that, we could be here for 24 hours at least because we've all been there and done things. There are places and times we all wish we could go back and undo. One of mine was throwing a knife at a young man years ago. I wished I could take that back, but I can't. I lost a friend over that. Could have lost his life, but that's, that's another story. But we, we can't. But the good news is Jesus Christ isn't bound by time. And when he died on the cross, he was enacting a cosmic System restore for all of our sins. Every one of us. You say, I can look at Robert and I know that guy, man, he's got just, he's, he's such a rough life and, man, he's done so many bad things. And God says, I can look at him and see nothing but holy. 
we all have things in our lives that we want to keep quiet. We want to hide. We regret things in our past. But did you catch the word that God used in that verse 22? He said, you will become holy. Now that's a, wait a minute, holy, that's set aside for God, isn't it? Jesus called us holy if we're in Christ. Do you feel holy this morning? How many of you feel holy? Raise your hand. Well, you are holy whether you feel it or not, according to God, according to what Jesus Christ did for us. Before Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, the mental and moral system were running smoothly without a problem. Before they sinned. Man, everything was great. It was utopia. But when they sinned, they were infected by a deadly virus that was passed down to every single human being that's ever lived. It's called the virus of sin, a sin nature. It's worse than the most sinister computer virus you can imagine. And every one of us has been infected with that same virus. Our mental and moral systems are malfunctioning a lot of times. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. That's the promise that Christ gives us. On the cross, Jesus spanned time and space to undo the damage of what was done centuries and centuries ago. But just like a computer virus turns off your, restore, your system restore button, Many times, Satan will do everything with his power to get you to turn off Jesus in your life. There's probably somebody here that was saved as a small child, young child. And maybe you've drifted away from God in some point of your life. You may be back now, but I'm just using an example. You may be back now. But for years, you lived an ungodly life. Now, that doesn't mean you've committed murder or anything like that. Hopefully not anyway. But that means you're away from God. You left Him. And God says, all i got to do is hit the restore button and I can bring you back. What energizes that restore button? You. You've got to bow and say, God, restore me back where I need to be. I've failed you so many times in my life. Restore you back. I know I'm a Christian. I know it without a doubt. Restore me back to what it used to be like. Yes, I've got away from church. I've got away from serving you. I've got away from prayer. I've got away from all the things I know to do. Restore me back to that position. Remember that Paul was writing this letter of Colossians to warn people of some heretics in the church. They were called Gnostics. And what they were teaching was that Jesus Christ was not really God. But Paul refutes his heresy, this heresy by making it very clear it was through the death of Christ's physical body that our redemption is secured. Now do you see the connection? Because of what Christ did on the cross on that Easter, you and I now can press that reset button and come back restored to God. He gave his life for each one of us. In fact, the Apostle Paul wrote the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. I remember years ago, I don't remember, probably 15 years ago now, 
one of our Southern Baptist conventions was held in, I believe it was Dallas at the time, and one of the personalities on the show, on the show, on the program, was a man named Joe Theismann. How many of you remember Joe Theismann? Of course you do, guys. <laughs> Most of the women don't remember him, but they remember, they don't remember a whole lot about him. But there's one thing about Joe Theismann that stands out that we all remember, especially if we watched it that night. They remember a Monday night football game in 1985 when he was sacked by a linebacker named Lawrence Taylor and his, sna- his legs snapped in a grotesque way on television. I mean, it was, oh, it was sickening. The scene was played dozens of times that night and many more times over the years. As Joe Theismann stood on that platform, by the way, Joe Theismann's a Christian. As Joe Theismann stood on that pl- platform, here's what he said. You know, it's funny that when people talk to me today, they seldom mention that I threw 160 touchdowns, played in two Pro Bowls, won the Super Bowl. The thing that, that people remember and talk to me about is that injury that ended my career. And then he said this. I refuse to let my life and career be defined by one broken leg. Isn't that what we do a lot of times? Maybe we didn't break our leg, but we define ourselves by one sin we committed years ago. And we know that God's forgiven us. We don't forgive ourselves. And we live under that shadow of sin. Folks, we're holy. If you're a child of God, you are holy in God's eyes. You may not be to yourself, but you are in God's eyes. Because what God sees is one of these days you're going to stand before Him and you'll be draped in that white, clean robe. And God will say, here's one of mine. You are holy. Get that in our minds. Yes, we do commit sins. Absolutely. But as we grow in age and maturity as Christians, we ought to have fewer and fewer sins in our lives. But we'll always have it there. When I heard that, I thought about the Bible describes Satan as the accuser of the brethren. And that's exactly what Satan does. You leave this building tomorrow, this morning, excuse me, and you walk out there and you'd be thinking about those good thoughts about, oh, that song was beautiful, this was so good, and I enjoyed this and that and so forth. And Satan's going to try to get your mind off of it. You watch and see. As fast as you leave this building, he may be doing it right now. He may be telling you right now, oh, don't pay attention. You've got to go to the lake this afternoon. That's more important. Think about that. That's exactly what Satan's doing. He's trying to encourage you to turn the other way. Get out of it. You're no good. You're dirty, rotten. You're just a sinner. You know you're can't do any better. But in contrast to that, the Bible says when Jesus reconciled us to God, our sinful status is changed. We're no longer defined by our mistakes. We're now seen in the light of verse 22 that we just read. That's what we're in the light of. We belong to God now. It says that we become holy in God's sight. God doesn't look at me and see all the things I used to do. He looks at me and sees what I am now. And yes, there's still flaws. But he sees what we are. The Bible says even our good deeds are like filthy rags in God's sight. But wait a minute. He just said we look holy. Because once you come to know Christ, it changes all that. 
But when Jesus presents us to God, we are clothed in His righteousness. His righteousness. I love the words of Edward Mote in the hymn. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. The last stanza says, When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Oh, some of those old songs are so beautiful, we don't even pay attention to them sometimes. We don't need to get rid of the old hymns. I like the new music too, don't misunderstand. But those old hymns sometimes have more Bible than what you get in preaching sometimes. The third and final thing. <coughs> Continuation in God. Look at verse 43, 23, excuse me. Verse 23. If you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Wow. Let me ask you this morning, how do you know without a shadow of a doubt that you are a child of God, that you're saved, that you've been born again, whatever term you want to use? How do you know that, really? Have you ever thought about it? It's all the little word, if. You can certainly, you can be certain you have reconciled with God if, that verse says, if you continue in the faith. And what does that mean? If you ever get out of the faith and you've, you've lost your salvation? No. But you lose your confidence. You lose your hope. And people go through that, Christian people, all the time, folks. There's a lot of folks that are Christians. Yes, they are. But they feel hopeless because they've lost something. And what they've lost, they got away from the faith. And I'm encouraging you today, don't get away from the faith. If you feel that way, come back to it. Salvation is not depending on your good works. If you continue to seek and serve God and don't earn salvation, you don't earn it, folks. It's a gift. What are you doing to, is proving your salvation when you live in the faith. What does that mean? Well, if you're a child of God, you need to be in a church. I didn't say this church. You need to be in a church where you can be a part and serving in it and giving to it, singing in it, just whatever it may be. Playing instruments, there are numerous things. You're serving in a church. Maybe some of you are Sunday school teachers. Maybe some of you can do organization real well. Judy says, I'm not organized. I can't do that very well. But it's there's places for everybody to serve. If you're a child of God, you need to be in a church serving somewhere, in other words. And again, I'm not talking about necessarily this church. You have the right to make the wrong decision, but that's, that's your choice. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But I remember meeting a man some years ago who, when I talked to him, he said that he had been saved at a Billy Graham crusade in Dallas, Texas, years before. He said that he listened to the message, and when Billy Graham gave the invitation, he walked forward and filled out a card, repeated a prayer, and, and received some literature. And then he said, but you know, I've never attended church since. Folks, fill out a card, joining a church won't get you to heaven. It's not going to get you there. You can join this church. You can be baptized every week for 16 weeks if you want to. It's not going to get you to heaven. There's only one gate that goes to heaven. 
Jesus is the gate. Nothing else will get you there. Now, once that happens, yes, we need to be in churches serving and doing things and seeing the gospel go forward and so forth. Now, only God knows for sure if this man was saved, but to me, he didn't appear to be saved. Because he said himself, I've not been back in church since I got salvation. I start to say, buddy, you didn't get salvation. You may have got some religion, but you didn't get salvation. But I didn't want to judge him. But nobody knows for sure but God. But when you don't go to church, don't read your Bible. Do you think you're going to make it to heaven? Really? If you don't do what God commanded us to do, our church rolls probably, and I'm just guessing this, I bet we have 500 people in this church rolls right here at this church. There's not near 500 people here, let me assure you. Many of those do not come to church, haven't been in this church in years. We've got a couple in our church today that was in this church 30 year, about 30 years ago, wasn't it? They were members here, and they came back to visit with us. I told them, I said, we've still got your card on file. All we've got to do is update it. But they're just visiting with us today, but it's good to have them with us. But going to church does not make you a Christian, folks. It's got to be a relationship with Jesus Christ. Many of them believe that they'll go to heaven because they at one time went to church at Robertson Avenue Baptist Church. Wow, that's important. It won't get you one step closer to heaven unless you made a decision while you was at that church. That was what would make a difference. I believe there are all kinds of people that Jesus described in Matthew chapter 7 when he said this. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, in your name I cast out demons. I did many wonderful works. I was baptized. My name was on the church row at Robertson Avenue Baptist Church. Then Jesus will say to them, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. You see, it's not about knowing who Jesus is. It's about having a personal relationship. I know I've shared this story, but I'm going to share it again with you. But some years ago when we were up in Bonham area, I was headed, I think I'd gone to the hospital in Dallas and was headed back. And at the time, I couldn't pass a Poncho's Mexican buffet without stopping. I just, it just part of the, it had to. So I stopped in there and then uh, uh, oh, the town just north of Fort Worth, came uh, north of Dallas. Uh, anyway, one of, the, one of the suburbs of Dallas. Pulled in and got, I went through the line and walked out and this about noon time. It was full. I looked around for there was no tables. And so I thought, well, I guess I'll just hold my plate until somebody leaves. And this big guy sitting at a table right in front of us. He says, you need a place to sit. I thought, man, this guy's huge. Who is this? I went to the table and sat down with him. We started talking, just conversed. I mean, we were having a good conversation. He got up to leave, and he reached over, and he shook my hand. He says, I'm Randy White. Randy White of the Dallas Cowboys? Yep. <laughs> Now, let me tell you what I told that for is this reasoning. You could go ask Randy White if he knows me, and he doesn't have a clue who I am. But I met Randy White. I knew him. I can tell you all I met him. But what good does that do me? And that's the way a lot of people look at Jesus. Well, I've heard of Jesus. I know he does good things. I like him. He's a friend of mine. No, he says, depart from me. I never knew you I believe there's a lot of church people that unless something changes are destined for hell. Of all denominations. I'm not just talking about the Baptist church. Then Jesus will say to them, Depart from me, you who work iniquity. I never knew you. 
I don't know who said it, but I think it was Adrian Rogers. Listen to this. I like this quote. The faith that fizzles before the finish was faulty from the first. I like that. What are we to do? So based upon what Jesus has done for us, what are we to do? How do we hold on to the hope he's talking about? We can hold on to hope because Jesus is our hope. He has a firm grip on us. It's not a matter of us holding on to him. He's got a hold of us. And he's not going to let you slip. You're not going to go back like you used to be. Oh, you may do some things, but if you're truly a Christian, you will not go back. It's, I can't even imagine going back to what my old life was. I don't want it anymore. I was amazed I lived to be 21 years old. But it, I don't want that anymore. God's given me something to hope for down the way. What do you do then? Well, number one, don't quit. Keep on trusting. Keep on serving. Keep on seeking the Lord. The very fact that you continue to seek and serve the Lord is proof of your true conversion. The Bible compares the Christian life to running a race. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders the hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us, and let us run with perseverance the race that's marked out before us. Did you catch? He said, in every one of us has a sin that so easily trips us up. I'm not going to ask you what your sin is. I know what mine is. And yep, it trips me up quite a bit. But every one of us have one. And he says, lay it aside. If you started to run a race, you wouldn't wrap a weight around your neck to run with because it would weigh you down. And that's exactly what he's saying, what we do so many times. Let me close this out real quickly. The race is not a competition between us. So we're not trying to outrun each other. Whether I think that about that, I'm reminded of a story that two young country boys went out in the woods to hunt squirrels. They had their 22 rifles. But as they were hunting, they were shocked to come upon a bear. Now, if you know much about guns, a twenty-two doesn't do a whole lot against a uh, bear. They were shocked to come up on this bear, and he started coming closer and growling, and, boy, they, they were scared. They emptied their rifles in this bear, but it just made him matter. So the bear starts chasing them. The two boys run, turn, and run, and the bear's gaining on them the whole time. In order to run faster, one of the boys kicked off his hunting boots and started running. The other guy says, what in the world are you doing? He says, I'm getting rid of these big boots. They're slowing me down. The other one says, why are you doing that? You know you can't outrun the bear. He says, I don't have to. All I can do is outrun you. That's the way we ought to be like. The only way to know for sure your salvation is real is when you finish the race. Are you finishing the race? On August third, excuse me, on August third, nineteen ninety-two, in Barcelona Summer Olympics, there was a British runner named Derek Redmond competing in the four hundred yard dash. In one of the semifinal heats, Derek took off with the other runners, but about a hundred yards in the race, he tore his right hamstring and fell to the track in agony. But in an amazing display of courage. Derek rose and began to limp toward the finish line. Medics rushed toward him, but he waved them off. Then a heavyset man came out of the stands and ran out there toward him. It was his dad. At first, Derek tried to wave him off. No, Dad, I'm going to finish it. 
He didn't recognize him at the first time. He pushed him away. But then he recognized who he was, and he fell into his arms crying and said, I have to finish this race. I have to finish it. As his dad, dad took him into his arms, he said, we've started everything together. We're going to finish this race together. And with very few eyes in the stadium, among the telev- television audience, the two of them struggled together to cross that finish line to a thunderous applause. What a wonderful picture of the love of a father for a son. But, folks, it's also a picture of God's love to us. God will reach down and get us. If you have fallen and failed, God sees you in all your brokenness and pain. He comes to help you. At first, you may not recognize him, and you try to push him away. But God's not going to quit. He has promised to carry you through tough experience of your life, and he will do that if you'll let him. God says in Isaiah 46, verse 3 and 4, You whom I have upheld since you were conceived and have carried since your birth, even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you, and I will carry you. The message has been learning about our alienation from God, our reconciliation with God, but our continuation also of God. Christianity is more than just knowing the truth. It's living the truth. Based on what you've learned of salvation, we each should be asking ourselves, now what should I do with this message? I always like to put in a question, okay, so what's the point of it? I'm going to ask you this morning, so what should you do with that? The question can be answered in three different ways because there are at least three different kinds of people sitting in this room right here today. For some of you, your goal is to start the race. I've never got on the track. I've never started. In other words, you're headed in the wrong direction. You're in the wrong race. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said there's a wide road that leads to hell, and many people are on it. They don't know they're headed to hell. Proverbs 14, verse 12 says, There is a way that seems right to man, but the end is destruction. If you aren't a follower of Jesus Christ, you can turn back and get on that other road today. You can get on the right track. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how late you are to run the race that will take you to heaven. Maybe for others you need to get back in the race. You're a Christian. You know you're a Christian. You've just dropped out of the army. And the fight goes on without you. For some of you, there may that may mean that you have to go and something that has a slowed you down. You need to get rid of that. As Paul said, the one sin that slows us down, and we all have one, every one of us. Finally, there are those who've been in the race for years. You've been running steadily and surely. You've learned the Christian life is not a 100-yard dash. It's a long marathon. The Christian life isn't about competition, who finishes first. It's about who finishes strong. By the way, the finish line isn't heaven. Did you know that? The finish line is Jesus. Hebrews 12.2 says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Heaven's just a benefit of Jesus. 
Jesus is who we're fixed on. Last thing I want to tell you this morning. So, child of God, you may not be where you ought to be. You may certainly not be what you're going to be. But praise God, you aren't what you used to be. Doesn't that give us hope? Let's stand together this morning. Dear God, we thank you for this time you've given us. And, Lord, we come to the close of this service. We just ask that you would be with us today. And just, Lord, if there be anyone in this service that does not know you in a personal way, and, Lord, today would be the day they'd come to know you. Lord, our deacons will be here at the building, at the side of the building. And just anybody that needs to talk, they'll be willing to talk to them. Whatever the need be, they can use this altar as the steps as an altar. And just, Lord, just pray to you and bring us back to your place. Lord, make us what you want us to be this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.